Hello everyone and welcome to this ICMA podcast. My name is Charlotte Bellamy and I work in the market practice and regulatory policy team at ICMA. I'm delighted to be talking today with Amanda Thomas and Jen Creswell from Allen & Overy. Amanda is a partner in the International Capital Markets team at ANO and Jen is a counsel in the same group. I'm going to be chatting to Amanda and Jen to get their thoughts on the practical implications of COVID-19 for European primary debt capital markets. I should probably also add that we're recording this on the 24th of April. So hello Amanda, hello Jen. Hi Charlotte. Hi Charlotte, thanks so much for inviting us along today. It's just incredible to think what's happened over recent weeks, isn't it? It is indeed very strange times. I mean, I don't think any of us would have predicted a year or even six months ago that we would be in this situation. It's been very interesting actually to see how European primary debt capital markets have reacted to the crisis. There was of course a significant impact in March when I suppose the virus was starting to really take hold in Europe and issuance levels were very clearly impacted then. But the markets reopened and things have actually looked pretty buoyant this month. I guess that one of the factors behind that is the central bank asset purchase programmes. So is it fair to say that those programmes are generating a lot of activity? Yes, they are. Our general securities group colleagues have been flat out documenting commercial paper programmes so that certain issuers can access the Bank of England's new COVID corporate financing facility or CCFF as it's known to its friends. And that's including issuers who haven't previously had commercial paper programmes. The CCFF is providing liquidity assistance to issuers who are, in the words of the Bank of England, making a material contribution to the UK economy although we should note that the facility isn't available to financial sector entities. Um, and it's not just UK corporates, but other companies too, as long as they're in sound financial health prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Usually that means they have to show investment grade ratings, uh, but there are other routes to this, and our bank clients have of course been helping issuers to access the facility by submitting the relevant metrics and acting as counterparties. Yeah, and on the documentation side, we at ICMA made our standard form ECP documentation freely available to non-members as well as members for this purpose. And that's been really helpful, Charlotte. As people will be aware, there are also other simplified pre-approved Bank of England versions of the ICMA proformers on the bank's webpage and indeed other simplified versions being used. Generally, we think it might be most useful to start with the ICMA documents as then the programmes can be used for other purposes outside of the CCFF. But I know there's some sensitivities around this and it doesn't work for all issuers or bank counterparties. So I think people are adapting the approach depending on the issuer and the bank counterparty involved. And in fact, I think this is where one of the challenges lies, that despite the ICMA and Bank of England standards, different counterparties and different law firms all have different approaches. So we can have a lot of establishments on at once for CP programmes, but they all look different. That's very interesting and really good to hear that the availability of the ICMA documents has been helpful. We've obviously focused on the Bank of England scheme, but there are, of course, other schemes, including the ECB's Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, or PEP, which is a temporary expansion of its corporate sector purchase programme. And the Fed has also established a commercial paper funding facility. So moving on to a different topic, 
There are doubtless plenty of sensitivities around the impact of COVID-19. So in light of that, I wondered if there have been any developments on the market abuse regulation front. I wouldn't say developments as such, Charlotte. Um, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA here in the UK, and the Europe, European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA, have of course taken the opportunity through various statements to remind issuers of their obligations under MAR, the Market Abuse Regulation. And COVID-19 impacts on an issuer's financial position or prospects may of course amount to inside information for an individual issuer. In general, where issuers have equity listed, they'll be addressing those MAR considerations from an equity perspective. Where they don't have equity listed but have a debt listing, MAR considerations of course still apply and shouldn't be overlooked. The same MAR principles apply to debt listings and while debt can be less sensitive than equity to company specific disclosures, that's not to say that things cannot also be price sensitive in a debt context, particularly in the present circumstances. Thanks Jen. So whilst we're on the subject of ongoing disclosures, it would be good to hear your views on the pressures on issuers in terms of ongoing financial disclosures and how the difficulties around quantifying the financial impact of the pandemic is playing out on deals. Why don't I kick off on that one uh, as we're definitely seeing challenges on the auditors front. As you might have expected, auditors are finding that they can't carry out audits as they normally would because of travel restrictions and social distancing measures. And COVID-19 is particularly impacting certain audit elements like going concern review and impairment testing. But we're also seeing the challenges they are facing playing out on deals, as you note, and I'm sure many li listeners will be familiar with that. The delivery of the ICMA form comfort letters is no longer regarded as routine work and auditors may want to take longer over agreeing those letters, which is rather tricky given the accelerated deal timelines we're facing. We haven't actually mentioned those yet, but we're sometimes dealing with trades being closed on a T plus two basis at the moment. Anyway, against that backdrop, we've heard comments that auditors don't have the time to conduct the usual procedures to issue an ICMA standard comfort letter. And we've also, as you're aware, Charlotte, seen attempts at changes to the ICMA form of arrangement letter, which I think we're all keen to avoid, given that that form has long represented the market-wide basis for accepting arrangements. Indeed, and we at ICMA have facilitated discussions between member firms and audit firms on this topic. But outside of the deal-specific context, am I right in thinking that there's some relief to take the pressure off of filing financials? That's right, Charlotte. Uh, the FCA in the UK are giving certain listed companies an extra two months to publish their audited annual financial reports. And they've said they'll forbear from suspending any listings if impacted issuers publish their financial statements within six months of their year end. As you know, Charlotte, it's the transparency directive that drives disclosure requirements for, quotes, regulated markets in the EU sense of the phrase. And under that, issuers usually have just four months from the end of their financial period to publish audited annual financial statements. So giving an extra couple of months may be helpful. But that FCA relief isn't targeted at all listed issuers, is it, Jen? 
No, that's right. It's limited to issuers who have securities listed on a regulated market and who have the UK as their home member state for transparency directive TD purposes. But it won't apply if an issuer only has debt with a wholesale denomination listed on a regulated market and no equity or lower denomination debt, as the TD driven four month period won't apply to them. Those issuers will already enjoy the longer six month period before publication in any event, as the FCA listing rules drive their obligations to disclose financials. ESMA is also obviously encouraging national competent authorities in a similar way, and they've talked specifically about relief in respect of half yearly financials as well, although we haven't seen that confirmed yet by the FCA. Charlotte, just to add here, the FCA have stressed that they are really keen that companies review their financial timetables and take this extra time if they need it. Um, and they've also said that it's incumbent on the market as a whole not to draw adverse inferences if a company does take it up. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I guess we'll start to see fairly soon how many companies do take up the relief. But I imagine that delays in the publication of financials and indeed difficulties with preparing uh, those financials will impact disclosure in the prospectus sense as well. Yeah, that's got to be right. An issuer needs an up-to-date prospectus disclosure package to issue. So any delays in the publication of financials and drawing up the numbers is likely to impact an issuer's ability to update its disclosure package, which in turn might affect its ability to issue. So what changes are you seeing on the prospectus disclosure front? I'm happy to start on that subject. Um, we're obviously seeing the inclusion of COVID-19 specific questions in due diligence exercises, which vary depending on the type of issuer. And then the responses to those questions will reveal themselves as appropriate through the disclosure included in the prospectus. The majority of issuers are covering COVID-19 to a degree in their disclosure and most likely in their risk factors at the moment if an issuer's business or the transaction structure is likely to be adversely affected by the outbreak. And we're trying really hard to keep track of examples of risk factors, aren't we, Jen? Yes, and there seems to be a sliding scale of approaches with some issuers feeling a separate risk factor is needed to the other end of the scale where reference to COVID-19 isn't needed in many places. Or sometimes an issuer would take the approach of knitting references to COVID-19 into existing risk factors. For example, those covering disruption to supply chains as COVID-19 is something which would exacerbate that problem. And this may be bolstered by the inclusion of a separate risk factor on COVID-19 too. So in other words, the approach has to fit the issuer. And of course, where a prospectus falls within the scope of the EU prospectus regulation, we need to remember the requirements of the PR and the guidelines on risk factors published by ESMA in 2019. For example, ensuring that risk factors are specific and material and avoiding risk factor wording in which the potential negative impact of the risk isn't clear. Yes, and ICMA members have discussed that issue a few times now. In particular, fact, the fact that the risk factor requirements in the debt annexes of the delegated regulation refer to risks that may affect the issuer's ability to fulfill its obligations under the securities. So really risk factors must go to the credit of the issuer. 
Yeah, I totally agree there. It's always necessary when crafting risk factor disclosure and debt prospectuses to consider whether it's material and specific to the issuer whilst bearing that credit point in mind. The other tricky thing in this area is the significant or material change statement disclosure in the prospectus. It's getting increasingly difficult for issuers to give clean statements. Most will have to qualify by reference to some disclosure that they include elsewhere in the prospectus. And issuers are likely to need to be as specific as they can be here, whilst recognising that it isn't going to be possible to quantify things. In general, I think the important thing will be to ensure that when issuers are thinking about their disclosure obligations under the prospectus regulation, they remember to apply the disclosure test with COVID-19 in mind across the entirety of the disclosure package. And that includes those significant and material change statements. Thanks both. So there's a lot to consider. Um, I wonder if I can briefly take the opportunity now to mention something close to our hearts at the ICMA, and that is the ICMA Force Majeure Clause. So have you been receiving many questions about this? Uh, to be honest, not really that many in the mainstream DCM space, and that could well be down to your timely publication of a note on the topic. As you can probably imagine, the concept of force majeure in the context of COVID-19 is something that has been debated across ANO in many different product groups. But in our space, we have the ICMA force majeure clause, which can only be triggered between signing and closing. So quite a short period right now, as we've already discussed. And then only if the two specific limbs are met. So really, it's more of a case of whether issuers can get to market to do a deal in the first place at the moment. Okay, good. Well, that's perhaps one less thing to worry about for now. Of course, if people are interested in a reminder about the clause, we have, as Amanda mentioned, published a note on the clause and how it would be expected to operate in the current crisis on the COVID-19 market practice webpage on the ICMA website. So I think we have a couple of minutes left. Uh, is there anything else that you think we should cover off? I think it would be remiss of us not to mention electronic signatures and that can encompass all sorts of things like the pasting in of saved JPEG or PDF signatures or a platform like DocuSign but whatever they're becoming a popular way to sign with everyone working from home and limitations on people in terms of available printers or restrictions imposed by policies in terms of what can actually be printed at home. So is that presenting problems on deals then? Um, there were obviously a lot of questions at the outset, but I think things are settling down as people are getting their heads around how to go about it and the right questions to ask. I think our view in general is that the usual Mercury signing approach should continue to be the first port of call as it's obviously established practice. And just to be clear on that, Jen, what we mean by that is the usual procedure for virtual signings, which involves scanning wetting signature pages. Yes, um, but where that isn't an option for everyone on a transaction, e-signing may work, although there are things to think about. As English lawyers, we know it's fine to sign e-sign simple contracts governed by English law, where all of the parties are incorporated in England. But that's not where we are with most of our deals. So it's a case of analysing the circumstances and asking questions like, Will the jurisdiction of the issuer allow electronic signature by that party? Does the particular issuer need power to sign electronically? What type of document is being considered? And because if it's a deed, there will be further considerations as well around witnesses and who should be executing. 
and then global bearer notes, as you know, Charlotte, bring their own challenges. But that's perhaps less to do with electronic signature as such and more to do with the fact that they currently need to be printed out and stored in a vault. We know common depositories are worried about their continued ability to do this and discussions are ongoing between the clearing systems and common depositories on that front. But there's no change at the moment in relation to practice there yet. Yeah, that's something that we are monitoring at ICMA and we're in touch with the ICSDs and other parties on it. And that reminds me, Charlotte, we should, of course, mention our corporate trust and agency colleagues as trustees and agents are obviously also impacted. Um, and they've written a client publication called Bondholder Meetings in the Time of COVID-19, Virtually OK, which is available from the COVID-19 microsite on ano.com, should anyone be interested. I did see that, Amanda. It was uh, helpful. Thank you. So I think we should draw to a close now, but thank you both very much for your time. It's been a whistle-stop tour of some of the practical implications, but hopefully people have found it interesting and useful. Of course, if you'd like more information, there is plenty more online, as we've highlighted throughout the podcast, and indeed on ICMA's COVID-19 webpages on the ICMA website. Thank you for listening.